0: We've got a hard and good topic to talk about today. Uh, I thought about, since we just did our dating relationships seminar last month, is this just overkill? Is this redundant? Uh, But I, two things. We can't go through the Proverbs and ignore sexual purity, sexuality in general, because it's one of the the main themes throughout Solomon is writing to his son, his sons, the youth of Israel. Uh, But also we could talk about this every other week, and it still wouldn't be enough, right? So uh, we're going to keep doing it. Um, Okay. So if you were at our dating relationship seminar last month, uh, you'll remember we started out by watching this unbelievable love montage of movies from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 2000s, today. We laughed, we cried, we oohed, we awed, right? Uh, And it was very moving to us because... All of us have seen mostly all the movies that were in this montage. We've seen these movies growing up our entire life. And this is the air we breathe as Americans. The romantic love air we breathe. The water we swim in. Uh, we, we talked about that from, this is like from youth on up. From the moment you're like four or five, you're taught by watching Disney movies, no less. First thing, you're taught by in Bambi, girls, you're taught how to flirt and bat your eyelashes, right? And then what is the point of every Disney movie? Romantic love, right? Like happily ever after. The guy will not be satisfied until he has saved the damsel. And the girl will not be satisfied. Her life will continue on in unhappiness until she is rescued by her Prince Charming and they live happily ever after. And this is what we are beginning to, well, not beginning, we've thought this as Americans for a long time, nearly all of Western culture has thought this for a long time, that we will not be satisfied until we have this ideal romantic love relationship. And until we, don't, until we get it, then our life is kind of meaningless. Like our life kind of is building to the wedding day and then it culminates at the wedding day and then, yeah, then the rest of our life is just kind of boring, right? We, we kind of continue on in marriage, maybe have some kids, but like the wedding day is like the pinnacle of our lives as Westerners and as Americans. So we talked about that then, uh, but this isn't necessarily a straight dating and relationships talk like we did last month. If you missed that, We'll at least do it two years from now, we might start doing it every year, so I invite you to come back to that next year, two years from now. Uh, And so we're not strictly talking about relationships today, but it's not less than that. We're going to be talking today about sexual purity and the temptation of sexuality. You'll notice on your notes sheet that that's the title, the temptation of sexuality. It's not just like the physical act of sex, but all of... Our culture is about our sexuality, both wanting to be sexy and desiring the sexy, right? So Solomon has a lot to say, and I'm going to try to go through this a little bit more quickly today. I think Some of you might notice, and I don't know if JJ announced this, we are going to, I'm going to sh- teach a little bit shorter than I normally do, and then the guys, all of us, are going to go quietly to the West Wing, uh, and the girls are going to stay here, Danielle's is going to lead a conversation over there. I'm going to lead a conversation over here, and I'm going to lead a conversation over there. There's a newcomer's reception, guys, right after uh, the second service. So we're going to, as soon as we're done, quickly leave. And there's probably going to be food and snacks out. Do not touch it. It's not for you. Okay? Um, okay. I, You guys probably know this because I mention his name a lot. I, I lean heavily on Tim Keller and his books and the way he preaches. And usually I just gather some small nuggets of wisdom today, I'm pretty much leaning on his structure that he taught through when he taught about sexuality and beauty. And he structured his sermon on how we tend to both undervalue sexuality in our culture today, and then at the same same time, we tend to overvalue sexuality. So we're going to look at these two questions today. So first, how do we tend to undervalue sexuality in our culture? Also the same question that I did last month at our dating relationships seminar and that is why did God make us sexual beings? Why didn't he make us asexual? Right? There are some organisms in on this earth that do that, right? They split. There was one cell and now there is two cells. God could have made me to like in order for me to reproduce, he could have made me like separate from like my waist down and then there's Caleb and Owen, my two sons, right? Uh, but he didn't. He didn't make me asexual. He made us all sexual. And so, why did he do this? And I think until we understand the answer to that question, we're going to have an incredibly warped and distorted view of sexuality, just like our culture does around us. Because they don't, they don't, and we don't, by and large, don't understand why God made us sexual beings. So, I spent 45 minutes, an entire session on this last week, and we're going to spend 5 or 10 today, so I'm going to move quickly, and this will kind of be a little bit of a recap if you were here last month, but listen, listen to this. This is your first blank on the, on the screen. The purpose of a sexual relationship is this, to serve as a living portrait of the life-changing spiritual union that believers have with God through Christ. I'll say that again. The purpose of a sexual relationship is to serve as a living portrait of the life changing spiritual union that believers have with God through Christ. So, so how is this? Why, why, do, why do we define it like this? We know this from Ephesians 5, where Paul explains this. He's, he's quoting from Genesis 2. He, this is his quote, where, where Moses writes about Adam and Eve. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, they're going to leave their parents' families, Get married, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then this is what Paul says. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul is revealing a mystery, that which was previously unknown. We didn't understand this whole marriage thing until Christ comes and begins reconciling himself, marrying himself as the bridegroom to his wife, the church. So, Paul is saying that sexual oneness, one fleshness, we'll call it, uh, in, within a marriage was created by God to serve as a foreshadowing for Christ to come. We talked about it this a lot last month, but just as Passover, which is today, right? Uh, the Palm Sunday is a celebration on the Jewish holiday at Passover. Passover in Egypt, when... They trusted in the blood of the lamb to, have, to save them from the angel of death that was supposed to prepare and point Israel to the coming true Passover lamb. Sex, in the same way, is meant to point us to uh, the Christ, church, one flesh union. Okay, So the marriage union, then, is not simply a legal union that the state recognizes. It's not just a social union that those in uh, your city recognize. It's not just a financial union that your banks recognize and not just a family union that your parents and families recognize, but it's rather a union of bodies, a union of life that God recognizes that these two who were once separate are now one. And so we said last time, last month, that that's why sex outside of marriage is so destructive. It's broken apart from the very purpose in which God created it for. So the way we behave sexually must conform to that which God has created sex to illustrate. The life-changing nature of the Gospel. So we said, just as Christ reserves Himself spiritually for His spouse, we are to reserve ourselves sexually for our spouse. Christ is united to the church alone. So therefore, we are supposed to be sexually united to our spouse alone. Christ does not divorce His bride Thank you, God, right? That we are adulterous. He is faithful to us. And because of that, we are therefore not supposed to divorce our spouse. So this is why God did not make us asexual beings. Why I didn't split to make my two sons, right? He made me sexual. He made all of us sexual beings with sexual longings and desires to serve as a living portrait for the life-changing spiritual union that believers have with God through Christ. So like I said, if we miss this, this extremely fundamental reason why God made us sexual, then we'll make sex and our sexual desires either a dirty thing, right? Christians have, throughout our history, tended to have done this, right? We'll just avoid it, see it as dirty, just a necessary evil to have kids, right? Or we'll tend to overvalue it. So we're talking about undervaluing, though right now, Solomon is no prude, he is no prude about sex we see this all over the place through the proverbs and then certainly in the song of solomon but in his culture in this in this day both jewish culture to some some degree and then certainly the surrounding pagan cultures you didn't just get married for like intimacy because you really loved the person or like companionship like we might get married today the reason you got married in these societies were to increase your standing socially or so that you could have a family, so you could get married to have kids. This is, these are really the only reasons you got married in these days. But Solomon writes to his likely unwed son, his likely unmarried son, and to our unwed sons of Israel, what their marriage should be like. And he says in Proverbs five, this is kind of this might make us blush a little bit, but I wanted to read it. Solomon says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and no strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Without going through the ins and outs of this passage, this is... This is pretty steamy, okay? Uh, this, is a, this is a pretty explicit passage of scripture here. And surrounded by cultures that viewed marriage, this is our next blank here, surrounded by cultures that viewed marriage as merely social contracts, Solomon has a higher view of marriage. It has real intimacy, real one fleshness. A union of male and female in marriage. This is no just social contract. He's saying, son, your wife should make you act like you're drunk. Like you, she, she should make you like stagger about the room, right? And not just now, but for always. Like when you're 80. Ooh, uh, But that's good. Right? This is an extremely high view of marriage. Higher than the cultures around him at the, in the day and certainly higher than our culture around us today, right? Then in chapter 30, verses 18 and 19, Solomon says, Three things are too wonderful for me, four I do not understand. This is like a poetic device to say the fourth thing is really awesome. He says, The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on the rock, and the way, the, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin or with a young maiden. Again, this is another pretty explicit passage. And I thought about leaving out these explicit passages. Maybe we shouldn't talk about these things that make us blush. But here's what I wanted to do. I wanted to put Solomon has a really, really high view of marriage. And I think the best thing that we can do as unmarried people is to see the high view of marriage as God is presenting it, to see the goal. Until we see. Why marriage is created the way it is, why it is so great, we're going to continue to settle for less. We're going to continue to settle for some cheap imitation of it. So I think, consequently, it's a good idea for you unmarried people, you guys and girls in high school, to read books like The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller or This Momentary Marriage by John Piper. Why? I'm not getting married for like 10 more years, five more years. This is the goal. This is what God has created and what marriage is. Don't settle for cheap imitations. Okay? So, Psalm is saying in this chapter 30, he's saying that the most beautiful thing that he can think of in creation is sexual intimacy between man and woman. Greater than all these other things that he is seeing around him, the one flesh union of man and wife is extraordinary from him, for him. Again, an extremely, extremely high view of marriage and sexuality. But you know what the problem is? Remember, we we're talking about how we tend to undervalue sexuality. We, tr- we tend to treat it like the next verse, like the adulteress in 30, verse 20. The adulteress says, th- this is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. Sex for her is like eating. It's just like, a, like an appetite that she feeds. Sex for her is just consumption. It's just routine. It's completely lost the wonder and beauty of sexual one-fleshness within the marriage that God has created for it. And she certainly, then, has no conscience about it. I've done no wrong. She has divorced her sexuality from which the purpose that God created it for and then doesn't feel bad about it at all. She has no conscience about it. So, next blank here. We tend to undervalue sex and sexuality similarly as commodities that are exchanged. Keller talks about, like, when you go to grocery shop, let's say you go to Smith's, the only way you'll keep going to Smith's is if, I don't know, the produce stays good, Right? or as long as the produce stays at an acceptable level of buying it, right? The only reason you're committed to Smith's is if they give you a product. You'll give them their money if, you give the, if they give you a good product. But the minute they start charging too much for lettuce and tomatoes, then you're just gonna go to Albertsons, right? You're not committed to the store, you're just committed to the product, to the goods. And we tend to do the same thing. We're not committed to each other, we're just committed to services, goods, Okay? We tend to treat sexuality like groceries. This is how we undervalue it, just an exchange of services. And I'm not just talking about sex here. Remember, we're talking about the temptation of sexuality, not just the sex act, but our sexuality. So, we tend to do this in the same way. We in- undervalue sexual longing, intimacy for with each other. We want relational intimacy and present ourselves in such a way to get it, or we long for it in others, this is an undervaluing of the reason God has made us sexual beings. We're longing for intimacy and oneness outside of the marriage that God has created it for. And this gets us right into our second point, how we overvalue sexual intimacy as well. So, let's look at chapter 11, verse 22. Solomon writes, this is a well-known verse and kind of funny. He says, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. So what's this saying? Remember, Solomon's writing to his sons, and he's saying, hey, son, listen, you'd be a real idiot if you were walking down the street, walking down the the lane, and you see there's a fence over there, and behind the fence you see in the mud a really shiny gold ring. So you go down off the street, and you climb over the fence, you reach down to grab the ring and you pull, but you can't pull it out of the mud. And then you look up to your horror and there is a giant sloppy pig attached to the ring, right? The ring is inside of this sow's nose. Oh, man, why didn't I see it? I Of course I can't pull this ring out because it's attached inextric- inextricably to this gross pig. He's saying... We laugh at that, it's a funny image, but he's saying, son, you would be just as much an idiot, a fool, to be attracted to a woman's beauty without noticing, first, what her beauty is inextricably attached to, her character. And this is why all throughout the Proverbs, Solomon is urging his sons to not only want to get married, but get married to the right woman. He's saying over and over to choose wisely. He's citing not her beauty, but he's citing her excellence, her noble character, her wisdom, her hospitality, her fear of the Lord. These things are the things that you notice first. Not the shiny ring that's attached to ugliness. And by the way, you girls might be thinking, you know, Proverbs 31 is a really well-known chapter on describing the noble character woman this woman of god you might be thinking hey this isn't fair there's an entire chapter for me to aspire to and uh there's a entire, entire chapter for guys to like go through this list of like what they're looking for in a woman why why isn't there proverbs 32 right describing this man where i can find a guy that i should be looking for well good news you don't just get one chapter you get 30 the the man that Solomon is describing that you should be looking for is the man described in Proverbs 1-30. through A wise man. All of these things that we've been talking about for the last eight weeks. A man who's gentle with his tongue. A man who wisely makes decisions. A man who uh, goes about reconciling conflict and forgiveness. These are the qualities that you should be looking for in a potential spouse. And again a potential spouse. If you missed our dating relationships talk last month, Solomon, nor any other biblical writer, has a category for a dating relationship. These are the, ca- these are the characteristics you should be looking for in your husband, your future wife. And if you missed that, you want to hear more about that, there's a little orange book called Sex Dating Relationships in the Book Nook. Can't recommend it more highly that you get that and read it. Anyway, back to 1122, the pig snout thing. It's a funny verse. We're supposed to kind of chuckle at it. And maybe Solomon's sons, when they first heard this, were like, hey, that's kind of funny. And just like Jesus' parables, it's kind of a way for Solomon to sneak past these guys and say, You're the man, Joker, you little clown son of mine. You are the man. You are the one who is distracted by physical beauty without first noticing this woman's character. And we are the same way. We are a culture that idolizes and worships physical beauty. Are we not? So your blanks here. We idolize and worship physical beauty, both in ourselves and in others. And this has devastating consequences on us. Devastating. Guys, don't... The TV shows that you watch, the commercials that are in between these TV shows, the movies that you watch, the magazines that you see teach you that a woman is merely there to provide a service for you, namely for you to look at her, right? Isn't this what our culture is teaching us? That their physical beauty is the only thing of importance about them and the minute they aren't physically beautiful, then they really don't have any value to you, and you can discard them as you want. Right? And guys, this is especially true of you, but girls, I'm not too naive to think this is true of you too. Like the, A guy's body is important to female culture in America, right? And a guy might be more valuable to you the better looking he is. So this is true of all of us. First of all, what about this? First, not only is it a lie from hell, and I'm not like, over-exaggerating being hyperbolic here, this is a lie from Satan, from the pits of hell, that you get your self-worth, your identity, or someone else is more valuable and more worthwhile to you because of their physical looks. But again, it's extremely destructive to you. How's that? It makes human intimacy difficult. If the only reason someone is valuable to you is because of how they look, then it makes it difficult for you to actually get to know someone and their character. It prevents you from actually loving and serving others. If you're only caring about getting the attention of those who are physically attractive. It's setting you and your potential spouse up for a really disappointing marriage. Because here's the deal, guess what? The most attractive your spouse is ever going to be is on the wedding day, and then it just kind of goes downhill. Uh, You know, you start getting a little weight in different places. Uh, This is the most beautiful or most handsome your spouse is ever going to be, is the wedding day. You're setting yourself up for disappointment if the only reason you like someone, you care for someone, you serve that person is because they look good. And again, it's removing the wonder and beauty of our sexuality that God has created us with. And then certainly we see around us the utterly devastating consequences it has on our women and our culture. Girls, remember, from Bambi and Aladdin on up, aren't you taught that your value is dependent on what you look like, what your face looks like, what your body looks like, and if it doesn't match up with the image of beauty that our culture tells us is beautiful, then somehow I'm somehow less valuable to myself and certainly to the culture around us. And then you may think, well, if no one else cares about my character, if all they care about is what I look like, then why should I care about my character, right? First of all, we're going to talk a little bit more about identity here, both in this talk, and certainly with Danielle, you girls. The second, guys, we can help change this culture. If we, the guys, the men of Desert Springs Church and your high school, started to value a woman's, a girl's character, her qualities that Solomon has described, her fear of the Lord, her gentleness, her hospitality, her care and serving of others, rather than just valuing what she looked like, wouldn't our girls and our women, girls, maybe you can agree with me on this, wouldn't you care more about your character if this was true, if society around us affirmed these qualities about you, rather than just affirming what you look like? Because you see, while Solomon was right that there is little in creation that is more beautiful and cross pointing than sexual oneness in man and woman, we tend to stop there and say, Sexuality will both satisfy and fulfill me. And this is how the answer to our question this is how we overvalue our sexuality or sexuality in general in our culture. And again, maybe this isn't actually a sexual relationship that you may or may not be having, right? Maybe you're not even dating. Maybe you don't, the girls and guys aren't even on your radar right now, but I guarantee you, you are still overvaluing sexuality. That my sexual attractiveness, that my beauty, my looks is what gives me value and identity. And in the same way that another person in your class or at church or on your street, that their physical attractiveness, their beauty, their looks are what gives gives them identity and beauty. And that's why, we, again, we're calling this the temptation of sexuality, not just the temptation of having sex, right? When we stop with Solomon, that... This is the most beautiful thing in all creation. We stop incredibly short because remember that God didn't make our sexuality or our physical beauty as an end to itself. It's a problem when we turn sexual intimacy, sexual longing, sexual uh, sexuality, a good thing, into a God thing, right? And this is what we do with everything. God gives us good things and then we turn them into a God thing that we worship that says it's going to fulfill us and satisfy us. We turn wanting to be with someone or the physical attractiveness of someone, you or another, into our Savior, a false Messiah, the thing that's going to give me identity. I just read this morning, this is great, that this day, this uh, Palm Sunday, is a Passover Sunday, and what Jesus is doing when he's entering Jerusalem, everyone around in Jerusalem is picking a spot-free, blemish-free lamb for which they can slaughter and trust in the blood of that lamb to save and atone for the sins of Israel. Jesus is saying, here I am, the spotless lamb of God, a better lamb than all the lambs that you are looking for. Pick me. I am the one that will save you, give you identity, give you purpose and security And just as much as these guys in Israel or in Jerusalem were missing the perfect and spotless Lamb of God, don't we do the same thing and worship sexuality as the thing that will save us, will secure us, will give us identity. So we can't stop at Solomon and say that sexuality is the most beautiful thing in creation. We have to move to Paul. Remember that Paul in Ephesians 5 says that the male-female, one-flesh union between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, points us to the one flesh union with Christ. And so here is the bridegroom that satisfies us. Here is the perfect Lamb of God that satisfies us. And again, Keller has an amazing observation here. He notes that the Messiah came to us with no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This is Isaiah 53. No No form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus was probably an ugly dude. We don't like that idea, right? In every depiction of Jesus we've ever seen on film, he's a really sharp guy, right? He's got maybe a beard and some long flowing locks, but they are beautiful locks, right? Uh, And he's always white and handsome. Jesus was not white. And he was probably according to the physical stature of people in this day, he was probably like five foot, five foot one, and probably an ugly, ugly dude. Okay? But listen to this. Keller says that these same words of form and beauty that Isaiah uses in 53 are the same words to describe the beautiful Rachel in the book of Genesis. You guys remember this story? Jacob goes and sees this girl Rachel she is gorgeous she has form and beauty right and he goes and asks her father Laban if he can marry her and he says work seven years and then you can marry Rachel and then the night of the wedding night Laban tricks Jacob it's dark and he marries him off to Leah the one who had no form or majesty that Jacob should behold or desire her And he says oh man This one, this this really beautiful one, is the one that's going to make me happy, the one that's going to give me identity and purpose, so I'll work another seven years and wait for Rachel. Completely kind of just ignoring the wife that he has. But here's the important part. Which sister is it that God chooses to bring the Messiah, the one who has no form or majesty that we should behold or desire him? Which sister is it? Leah. Leah. God, here's a blank. God deliberately chooses the un Rachel to show us what true beauty is. God sends the one who has no form or beauty that we should desire him through Leah, the one who has no form or beauty that Jacob should desire her. So, guys and girls, here's your last blank. Until you are identified with this physically unlovely one, Jesus you will continually long for the physically lovely. Both in yourselves, I have to be physically lovely for me to have value in this culture around me, and in others. This person is only valuable to me if they are physically lovely, right? And until you are satisfied with this One who loves you, not because you are lovely, but because He is making you lovely, He is transforming you, to look like Him, you will keep trying to make yourself lovely. And often at all costs. Your value is not determined on what you look like and other people's value is not determined on what they look like. can't say this more clearly. This makes me so angry to see commercials, magazines around us that value overvaluing a person's value and worth based on what they look like. So here we go, we're gonna split up, okay? We're gonna talk more about, I kind of talked in vague generalities here. uh, So we're gonna talk how this might apply to us more specifically as guys and girls and how we tend to undervalue and overvalue our sexuality. So guys quietly to the west wing. And grab a seat very quickly. We need to keep moving.